Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Abigail Bergstrom. She is a writer, editor and agent and she's worked in the publishing industry for over a decade. She is an industry leader, she's someone that I look up to, she's an expert in all things books and she's edited some of the most prominent feminist voices we have today. She was also nominated for Literary Agent of the Year in 2020 and she's helped build some of the biggest book brands that you see today on the shelves. But today we are here to talk about her debut novel, What a Shame, a brilliantly fresh novel with blistering humour, reminiscent of Emma Jane Unsworth's novels and the raw vulnerability of I May Destroy You. It's a book about female shame, it's about friendship, grief, about trying to heal yourself and about trying unorthodox remedies to do so, to go deeper into yourself. And it explores both the beauty and the pain of trying to figure the hard stuff out. So it was such a treat to talk to Abby and here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it and please go and order a copy of What a Shame, You Won't Regret It. I'm so excited, friend, former agent, author extraordinaire, and just a really important person in my life. Today, you are on the podcast to talk about your debut novel, which is just so, so exciting. And you've interviewed me when I've been talking about my books on this podcast. So, so nice to turn the tables on you. Feels very strange, but good strange. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you about it. I loved, loved, loved your book. I knew I would, but I really was just blown away by it. And I know how much you've worked on it over the years, how much hard work's gone into it. And um, just you in your creativity form is just Mm. so exciting for everyone else. So I wanted to kick off by congratulating you also on Bergstrom Studio, which is a new venture, but it doesn't seem that new now, but it's going so well. I read in an interview recently that you said you wanted autonomy and freedom in your career Mm. and you've gone out and created that for yourself. When did you realise you wanted that in your life? Um, I think it was, I think it was creeping up just because work's always been a real focal point in my life. It's always been a priority and the most important thing, which I think is quite common when you're in your 20s and you're working really hard and you're trying to establish yourself and prove that you're good at something. Um, And then I think when you kind of get into your 30s, you sort of think, well, I've achieved, you know, a lot of what I want to achieve or I've got to that point and what, what else is there to life? What else do I want to be doing? So I knew I needed to create more space. But I think ultimately, <laughs> as much as it was ticking slowly away in my mind, the thing that pushed me to do it in the end was getting sick and having burnout. And I think pushing myself to the absolute um, uh, limit of my capacity when it came to uh, working on my expectations of self and I just had to change the way that I was living and kind of deconstruct my working life and reshape it so that the balance was healthier. Yeah, it's amazing how that also was in tandem with the pandemic. I don't know if that happened before or during, but it felt like a really big year for you, like yeah. so much had changed. Yeah, it was in tandem with the pandemic. And I think it's a real, really common experience. You know, it's it's hard for a lot of us to distinguish between our kind of our, our personal time and leisure and our work time anyway, especially if you're doing something that you love and you're incredibly passionate about. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's the capitalist trick in itself to convince you that, you know, doing something you love isn't work. Well, actually, it is. Um 
So yeah, it, it did happen over the course of the pandemic. And I think it was hard, you know, living in my one bed flat and kind of chilling out on the sofa and watching a movie in the same place that I was negotiating deals and working as an agent. And I think everyone found that tough and it definitely was a contributing factor for sure. Definitely. It was like a big reflection for so many people. And just to paint a picture for the listeners before we talk about your book and your writing, you were representing like over 50 authors internationally around the world. And these Mm. were like really big, big time brand authors. Mm. That was a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd I'd gone over to um, a digital first management company to set up their uh, li- to set up a literary agency, effectively, and it kind of built it from the ground up. Um, and so it was such an amazing experience, and I just felt so. It felt like my baby. I just felt so much ownership over it, and um, I think that was that was definitely part of it as well. When you create something, when you, from nothing and you build something from the ground up, it, it does, that does take all of you. And that, that, the, the early part of that process is really pushing a boulder uphill. And then when something's up and running and it has its processes in place, it can start to run for itself and you can bring in hires and et cetera, et cetera. And I think the business kind of did get to that point, which I'm really proud of. And then it was like, okay, what's next? Yeah. I'm finding it quite fascinating at the moment, looking at these women who I really admire, who are reaching this almost pinnacle of outward success like uh, Farah Store, the editor-in-chief of Elle, yes. has just left. I don't know, I'm just noticing it across the board that it's not so shiny, shiny um, at the top of the mountain. It's like, what's next? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it's also important to say, because a lot of peers and people that work in um, creative or publishing industry ha- have sort of said to me, you know, I feel that the next step of success now is to have to leave the corporate world and set up my own thing. And there's suddenly this kind of culture of um, uh, startups and creating your own business and going to work for yourself that I think is putting pressure on a lot of people and feeling that if they're not doing that, they're not they're not reaching ultimate success. And of course, that's not true and, a, and quite a dangerous narrative because that's not for everyone. Not everybody thrives in that environment. Not everybody... Um, enjoys it I was totally open to the fact that I might have gone away and done it and gone do you know what this isn't for me and I want to go straight back and work for an agency or a, or a publishing house so and I'm still open to the fact that maybe one day that might be the right thing for me you know and I think it's it's just about understanding as you talk about so much Emma kind of success and what that means for you and building your life around it definitely because I think there's almost like this American dream hangover of the we work startup culture of not everyone wants to be Mark Zuckerberg, thank thank God. And also, I remember reading this book years ago called Company of One, mm-hmm. and it's just about being literally a company and it's just you. Yeah. And I've always wanted that. Like, I don't want a team. I don't want employees necessarily. Yeah, like solo entrepreneur. I really like this idea of being a small giant. So, you know, you don't have to be a huge company with an office of 10, 20 people to be kind of making game-changing moves or being progressive or doing kind of... Uh, industry groundbreaking deals, so to speak. So yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely an exciting moment. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to talk to you now kind of in in that journey now that you've actually made all those changes. It's really courageous to do, I think. So let's talk about when you were writing your novel. Mm. I think you were writing it in secret, weren't you, at the very beginning? I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell a soul, um, which got 
difficult when I got into when I got into the writing process because sort of friends were getting frustrated with me like why won't you ever commit to weekend plans anymore like why don't you want to hang out and you know I'd kind of skulk off early on a Friday night because I wanted to be uh, kind of compass mentis and not hung over on a Saturday morning to get up and write um, and then I kind of wouldn't commit to meeting up with friends on Saturday afternoon because if I was having a good writing day I might go on till early evening or if I wasn't you know I'd be ready to go out and do something so yeah I kept it secret I kept it under my belt because I don't think at the time to begin with I was consciously writing a novel I think what I was doing is you know, within the role of being an agent um, or an editor, indeed, a part of your job is kind of developing IP and giving away your ideas and working collaboratively with people to come up with ideas. And I just instinctively felt that I was going to dry up if I didn't find a, a space for me to have creativity that was just mine and just belonging to me, that I didn't have to kind of give away or even share with the world. It could just be... Um, just something joyful? Yes, because I have to say, you are incredible at that. You are full of ideas and you and that's what makes you an incredible editor as well, is like you bounce off other people, don't you? And then yeah. you add things to something that isn't quite there yet. And that's one of your major skills. So I can imagine giving away and being quite generous with your creativity. It's like take, take, take in many ways, even though you're enjoying it. Yeah, you've got to, I mean, it's like you say, it's a collaboration. And so it is a bouncing back and forth. And and, and that's how it, that's how it works. And I think that's how, um, you know, people think writing a book is a very solitary experience, but it's not actually by the time you've had multiple people read it, you know, editors, agents, notes, that in itself is quite collaborative. And it's the same with um, making, you know, writing scripts or making TV or films. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I love that part of it, but I definitely felt that I just needed something of my own. Because mm. Elizabeth Gilbert always says that that part of the process is like when it's sort of your, um, like, like you're having an affair and it's like secret and it's yours and it's no one else's. And that's quite amazing. Yeah. And just to see if I could do it, because it's a very different thing to collaborate with somebody on their book to going away and writing your own. And I didn't necessarily have complete conviction or confidence that I would be able to do it or write anything good. Um, And so I was quite scared and it felt quite special. It was something that I really wanted to protect. Um, And there was a real nervousness around telling people because I think I felt the second that I did, there would then be this expectation to get it published. And I know how complicated and long that road and journey is. Um, And so I felt concerned or worried about having that pressure on me from people who love me. Like, great, you've written this book, now it's going to get published. And actually, lots of people write lots of incredible books and they never see the light of day. And I know that more than anyone. Mm, Yeah, it's extremely vulnerable. Before Mm. we move on to how you did get it published, Mm. was that hard to say no to your friends at that point? Because I know a lot of people at the moment definitely get in touch to ask me how to set those boundaries Mm. because it's not selfish to go and want to do your own thing, but we brand it as that sometimes, especially as women, like, oh, we're putting ourselves first. Mm. How do you, like, say someone's got friends that are very full on and maybe wouldn't take a no very easily like Mm. how was that I I think that was definitely a point in my life where I was loosening ties with certain friends and tightening bonds with others and it was actually a time in my life where quite a couple of very significant new people were, were coming into my life as well 
and I think I think it was in part down to that. I, I was in a place where you know writing is so um, internalized. You have to spend a lot of time on your own and in your, inside your own mind, and a lot of time being quiet with yourself. And I and I yeah, I definitely had friends and people who didn't get that. Um, not so much weren't supportive, but they didn't understand it. And it was just a case that I think our, what we were wanting to do with our lives was different. And they were going in one direction and I was going in another. Um, and it's been a real skill for me. I mean, it is a real skill that I've had to hone and develop to be able to have boundaries with my own time, but also actually to just enjoy being on my own and like my own time moving in on, on my own, um, which was when I kind of wrote the bulk and finished the book. Um, I started it when I was living in a flat share and I just used to get up in the morning and write it in bed because I didn't have kind of any space to go and write. Um, that was a real learning curve for me to be able to demand that time for myself or assert that time for myself. Um, and yeah, I think you do lose some people who don't get it, but that's okay. Yeah, it reminds me of when I wrote Control-Alt-Delete alongside a full-time job and I remember someone calling me a workaholic because I was writing at the weekends mm. And actually, well, on brand with your book, I felt quite a lot of shame. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, I'm not fun. <laughs> but yeah. actually, I was having my own my own fun. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. And, you know, being around people all the time isn't my idea of fun. Spending a lot of time on my own is. That can be the most, like, blissful, like, creatively fulfilling, just pottering around and being in your own space is one of my favourite things to do now. But it wasn't. It wasn't. And I think the 20 something year old me was running around, running around town, bouncing around, hyperactive. I never could have foreseen her being able to sit with herself to write a book. But it's, as I say, it's a process and it changes slowly and you learn to sit with yourself. And that for me was like a really beautiful and important part of writing the book in itself, I think. Yeah, it's incredible. So I wanted to talk to you about how you pitched it under under a pseudonym. Yes. Because... The world's worst pseudonym. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is, that is so interesting. And I, I remember being fascinated by that when you told me because it's so vulnerable to do that. You know, to really put the words first, and I understand why you did it, but yeah. would you be able to explain how that was? Yeah. So I submitted it to agents under a pseudonym. Um, I submitted it at first, actually, to a couple of agents who were sort of friends that I knew to kind of get there. Like, do you think there's something in this? Do you think this is something I should um, to get some friendly feedback, which I did. Um and then when I was kind of like seriously looking for somebody to represent me, I decided to, to submit it under a pseudonym, uh, Jessica Sharp. I took that decision for multiple reasons. I think I've worked in publishing for over a decade. I know a lot of people and have a lot of contacts. And I didn't want anyone to think for a moment that I'd got a book deal off the back of that and not off the back of the book and the writing itself. And it's so, so interesting. Like, it even makes me happy to this day that I have done that because quite regularly I get asked that question, not so much by people um, within the industry, but certainly other people in my life who I come across, especially men, especially men. Oh, you work in publishing. So you obviously knew quite a lot of people and getting your... And when, when you get to say, oh, no, actually it was submitted under a pseudonym and so nobody knew who I was, it's a kind of stops them in their tracks. And it was just so important for me that the book got commissioned and represented because it was a great book and for no other reason than that and I felt that in working with other authors ongoing in my career I could look them in the face and sort of be like you know I did it the same way that you did it and Mm. 
and um, that would be I would be more respected in turn with the people that I was going to work with later on in my career as well. Um, and you know, if I'm entirely honest, there's also a protective measure in doing that as well because I could have gone out loud and proud under my name, and it could have not got commissioned, and that you know there would have been an element of embarrassment in that. So. Yeah. God, how nerve-wracking though at the time. Because <laughs> it's nerve-wracking anyway. But to get a yes or a no really, really based on just that book alone. Yeah. It's kind of oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I, I'm glad I did it that way, but it would be amazing to be able to see the <laughs> to see the reaction of both because um, you know, to see whether or not it would have got picked up if my name had been attached or whether whether the response would have been different. But um And then you decided obviously to have your name on it when it comes out though. Definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. It was always my intention to want to publish it under my own name. Um so yeah, that was a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, it's amazing and it's it's just I don't know anyone that's done that personally. So it was so interesting to talk to you about it and what that process was like. Yeah, it was so. awkward when my the my agent Kate, she kind of read it um within the first sort of 12 hours of me submitting it. She read it that night and she emailed me twice, once to sort of say, "Hey, I'm halfway through this and I'm quite interested we should set up a call and then again a few hours later to be like hi I've just finished can, please can we talk tomorrow so it was really amazing to have somebody be so passionate so quickly but she um, called me and sort of said yeah, you know the pitch was really strong but it was odd like you didn't really tell me a lot about yourself like what do you do and I had to sort of be like I'm not Jessica Sharp <laughs> I'm actually someone else and I work in publishing and that god that was a, I was so 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 nervous to tell her that and get her reaction but thankfully yeah. she still wanted to take me on so few but to me also that highlights that number one you are so good at what you do you are great at pitching you're great at knowing what's kind of on the pulse and obviously you're a great writer you know the context of how many books don't get published. It's incredible anytime anything is because we both see so many times a novel doesn't get picked up. Yeah. And you even warned me about that when you pitched mine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's crushing to work with an author, you know, sometimes as an agent for a year um, and to have so much faith and belief in it and to really think that it's an incredible piece of art and then it doesn't get picked up. Um, there's no rhyme or reason for those things. If there was a set formula, my job wouldn't exist. Um, but it's it's really tough. Yeah, it's, it is really, really tough. But always worth a shot, which is why yes. I love these stories of like, send it out into the world. You can't keep it in a drawer. No. Um, so let's talk about the book and the themes because I just loved it. And I loved the character of Matilda Manning. Mm. And I love that you have this amazing character who is on a quest. She doesn't quite know it. But you meet her when she's broken and she's wearing the same dungarees for months and she is, you know, going through a really tough time. Mm. And there's a darkness to the book, but it's also made me laugh out loud. But she's going through kind of untraditional means to try and almost heal herself through her friends. Yeah. And... I mean, I'm into all sorts of weird stuff to try and fix my problems. It felt very relatable. Yeah. But did the character come first? Did the themes come first? Like, did anything... How did it come together? I think I was interested in kind of modern day spiritualism as the zeitgeist, particularly this commingling of secular and spiritualism. For example, we might meditate, but we don't necessarily believe that we're tapping into another spiritual consciousness or going into transcendence. We might just be doing it because it calms us down and helps with our day-to-day life. You know, similarly with kind of aura readings or horoscopes or... Um, 
you know, we've, we're also obsessed now with moon cycles. Moon cycles are kind of, you know, in our in our earliest recorded history, and indigenous tribes have been practicing them for years to come. And but suddenly we're awash with these moon cycle apps that are being used in a kind of non-spiritual way. And every meme is about you know Mercury being in retrograde, and they're just there's this clashing, um, which I found quite interesting. And I think you know the question of whether or not there is spiritual intervention when it comes to New Age rituals or esoteric kind of healing. Um, rituals, whether or not there is a spiritual intervention happening or whether or not it's just psychosomatic. And actually, if we do these things, you know, crystals, for example, many of us might keep crystals in our room. Is there a belief that they have a healing power or that rose quartz is really going to bring love into our life? Or are they a psychological comfort blanket? Mm. And that was something that I wanted to explore um, and unpick because I think it can be problematic but I also think that these things kind of help us cope with the revelations of existential truths and how painful the human experience is. Um, but I also thought it would be something that you could have a lot of fun with and take the mickey out of. Um, and so then Matilda came to me as this character who was going to be very sceptical of these ideas that her friends are kind of pushing her towards because she is so stuck she is so, so stuck and she's kind of dealing with, I think the book in its essence is about, you know, the utter devastation of heartbreak, but it's also about grieving a parent who maybe wasn't the parent that you needed them to be. And in order to kind of, you know, it's that you've been grieving this, you've been stuck in this for months. Come on, come on, you've got to afford, you've got to get over it. And she's not, she can't. And so these things kind of push her to challenge and explore herself in ways that perhaps she hasn't created space for before. Mm. Um And I'm interested in how I think in life, the light sits so closely to the next to the dark. You know, it's the absolute worst, most devastating thing can happen to you. And then the next day you can find yourself having to like bob to the dentist and something absolutely absurd and ridiculous happens that has you in fits of laughter. And it's that's so conflicting how utter joy and utter devastation coexist so closely together. And that was something that I think I wanted to explore through a character as well. So you I did yeah. that so brilliantly in the book as well, because I don't think I've read anything that really took me to different extremes, but not in a really uh, jarring way. Like I would turn the page and I would be feeling a lot of emotion, but then I would turn the page and I would laugh. <laughs> but isn't that kind of life anyway? Yeah, yeah. I think so. You did that really, really well. Thank you. But yeah, one of Matilda's friends, she sort of drinks the Kool-Aid a bit with all this stuff. Well, they all do a little bit. Because mm. um, that reminded me of me as well. When You know when you suddenly discover something and you suddenly want to recommend it to everyone? Mm-hmm. It's weird how the marketing can get to you as well. And yeah. you're suddenly on board the train. Why does that happen? Like, Why do we suddenly think we've got the answer when we, we've just tried something slightly different? For me, I think it is. it is that psychological comfort blanket. I also think... It's reassuring. There's definitely something in the sort of like ancestral strand of it. I kind of do love and buy into this idea of, you know, our mother's birth us and, you know, that they are literally of and coming from our body and we know our body carries trauma. And so they're like imprinting themselves onto us and their mothers and their mothers and their mothers. And this idea of this kind of like, you know, and sprawling ancestral kind of I think is fascinating um, and there is a kind of uh, moment where science meets the spiritual and 
but I think, you know, lack of faith in the establishment and kind of dwindling of making sense of the world and fact and fiction merging in the news. I think what these things do is they make us look inward mm. and find answers in ourselves, And that is a good thing, yes. ultimately, and something that brings us peace. And we've got so much information at our fingertips, even if some of it isn't necessarily rooted in anything completely scientific. Like I love reflexology, but when I Google it, there are lots of disclaimers that say this hasn't actually been mm -hmm. proven mm -hmm. to, I don't know, doing this heals this part of your body. But I, in a way, I don't really care. And I'm happy to have some sort of placebo mm -hmm. effect. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's what a lot of us are looking for. Yeah. I but think so. it's such an interesting subject matter and... You know, it it's annoying when people say, is it based on your real life or is this something you were going through? Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm cheating because I kind of, I know you behind the scenes, but I know that you're also really interested in this stuff. I mean, yeah. do you, when you do more promotion for the book, are yeah. you not really wanting that question or are you happy to talk about the influences on it and things like that? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, I think that question always comes, right? If you're a, a, a woman <laughs> writing yeah. a novel, it's kind of inevitable. Um, I know I saw a comment being like, you're wearing dungarees. And you're like, I'm not until, you know. Yeah. And, and do you know what? That's interesting in itself because I got the whole dungarees thing actually from my sister who was horrifically ill with burnout mm. as well and before me and, and kind of had to take six, seven months off work. And it was all she wore for six, seven months was dungarees. So they're kind of like, that is a detail that I've taken from my life. And I think that can happen. And, you know, it makes sense that we sort of extrapolate in a in a way, kind of ideas or stories or things we believe or things that we don't believe and use fiction to kind of explore or challenge them. Um, Chris Krauss in I Love Dick wrote kind of, why does everybody debase women for uh, exposing the conditions of our own debasement? And I think that's so interesting because for me, you can see there's definitely been a kind of rise and increase in books exploring the female psyche, you know, kind of Megan Nolan, Raven Lani being, you know, two of many um, last year that did particularly well. And I think um, we are in a place now where we've got the language and the ability to be able to write about and kind of excavate the female psyche and explore it in a way that perhaps we haven't before. And for me, to turn around and point at somebody and say, oh, well, this is autobiographical, um, is a is in itself a process of shaming women mm -hmm. and shaming the writer for deconstructing that horrifying and beautiful experience of being a woman. And it's, I think, yeah, I think it all comes back to the shaming of women um, to somehow make the relationship with one's book or art or writing or more complicated than really it is or really you ever set out for it to be, which is to explore something way bigger and way more meaningful and way more embedded and enriched by modern day conversations, I guess. I do find it fascinating that men are just not really prodded in that way and they just write something and it's like, oh, the book is separate to you and you're really creative mm -hmm. and you've made this up. And But then I actually have been reflecting on it since I wrote my book and I actually kind of sometimes think that I don't do it because I'm 
hopefully being like sexist to the author, but sometimes I want to really connect with the woman behind the book. Yeah. I mean, I mainly read books by women. Yeah. And sometimes my curiosity is just like, who's the author? Like, I'll go and look them up on Twitter and I'll go and Google them. And mm-hmm. I, maybe it's just me being nosy. And it's not me trying to grapple with the autobiographical parts. It's more like, who's this writer? Yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question in itself. Like, how does it change the art if it's autobiographical? How does it change the experience of it being read if it is? Um, but I, I, I can I can understand that. You know, I think quite a lot of writers, I mean, Sally Rooney spoke out recently about that kind of expectation of having to share the private or personal because you've written a novel and that not being quite right. But then on the flip side, she also talked about this idea of, um, you know, one's right to a story and to tell a story and also um, kind of your lived experience as well in terms of uh, tapping into certain subjects and that those two things being in contradiction to each other and it being quite complicated. So, uh, you know, I think it, I think it is, um, but I, I think that I'm a lot less, I'm a lot less sceptical of those kind of spiritual, I, I love to throw myself into that and think about the idea of there being spirit guides and somebody reaching out to help me. So for me, it was just really fun to put a slightly different hat on where I was being, you know, kind of sceptical and questioning and thinking it was all a load of hocus pocus and ridiculousness as Matilda does. Yeah. So that, you know, in itself, sometimes your fiction pushes you into um, the antithesis of what you think or conflicting things that you believe and you can try on a different hat and kind of relish being something that you otherwise would find really annoying. Yes. Well, I saw myself in both characters because who's the friend that um, recommends the bath, the uh, Eden. like the horror bath? Yeah. No, what's it called? <laughs> the banishing bath. <laughs> the banishing bath, yeah. that's it. Eden tells and, her she's cursed. Yes. And I, I really, for me, I actually get very, very defensive and upset when someone says to me, oh, that's kind of a load of crap. Mm. It's like, A, let me believe what I want to believe. Mm. Like you wouldn't say someone's religion is a pile of rubbish in front of them. And also... I, I do find that women are shamed for believing in horoscopes and things like that. I think it, there is a sexism for me. Yeah. Like the men in my life just roll their eyes whenever I talk about something that actually really meant a lot to me. Yeah. Like a Reiki session that made me feel better. I just, yeah. I feel like I want to wrap my arms around it sometimes and be like, let people like these things. And if it's a route into deeper self-compassion for yourself, why is that? Why is that a bad thing? Why is that a thing to be? But then I don't I think women are kind of kept distracted from themselves. They don't think uh the world necessarily wants us to find that self-compassion. They want us to be constantly not feeling good enough and trying to strive to keep up and you know that that, that again I think shame is is deeply deeply embedded as a tactic in doing that and kind of restricting us to certain areas of ourselves and not letting us have access to other parts and so yeah I think there is definitely a, a sexism within within those things and how we respond to them and it's interesting secular tarot reading as well and kind of using the cards as more of a sort of visual talking therapy mm-hmm. and what's coming up for you and what are the things that you project onto them and that's just as a, as worthwhile an exercise as going in as Matilda does and having a reading whereby the kind of reader implies that, you know, there are other forces there and that she's potentially connecting with um, her parent who's passed on. Yeah. 
and it broadens your mind. I mean, the times I've had palm reading, I wouldn't say necessarily they were always spot on, but the thought processes I had or the things that it made me think about are some of my like favourite memories because it allowed me to reflect on my life. Yeah, in a way that you'd not before. Yeah. It just broadens and offers out a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. I bet it was so fun to write this book because it is so <laughs> juicy and meaty and also you kind of learn quite a lot about different tactics and mm. different things. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the process of writing and I hope that comes out in the writing. Yeah, there's a real energy to the writing and I love that when you know that the author sort of has literally been hidden away that having a great time. <laughs> um, how... Do you find reading and writing at the same time? Did you have to put some of your books away? Because I feel sometimes I'm influenced without realising and I don't want to be influenced too much. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I definitely share that um, fear, I guess, of unconsciously um, borrowing or being creatively kind of inspired by something and not being conscious of it um so yeah I think there are certain things that you don't read because you feel that they're tapping into what you want to do or they're at, you know at the time you think oh I'm probably not gonna I'm just gonna focus on what I'm doing I'm quite blinkered like that anyway as well though I think even within my agenting the publishing world's quite small everyone knows what everyone's doing what everyone's buying what everyone's selling what everyone's publishing and I'm very like just focus on what I'm doing I'm not listening to the noise or looking at who else is doing what I don't find it helpful um, and I am a voracious reader, of course. I think when I was probably really in the flow of writing the novel and thinking about the potential of sharing it and putting it out in the world, you know, f finishing it, I don't think I was reading a lot of uh, similar fiction. I think I was reading more nonfiction. Mm. Yeah, because sometimes as well, and this might just be me, I'll read something... Like there's a book at the moment that's just come out and I really want to read it, but there's some similar themes in it. And I'm like, I don't want it to impact my own hopefully original idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Even though, you know, we all have, we all cross over probably. Yeah. And these, you know, these ideas are coming out of, um, you know, culture and the discourse. And that's where they, these ideas are coming from. They're, that's a, they're a, a response to. So it makes sense that some are going to cross over and merge and bleed into one another. But I feel the same. I feel defensive of the idea and also not wanting to get lost in someone else's perspective on something. Yeah. So for anyone listening who might be wanting to write something mm. um, for themselves or, or to be published, I know you've spoken a lot about the messiness and vulnerabilities of a first draft mm. would you be able to give some words of wisdom on how to push past that shame I think it's quite I feel shame when I write an awful first draft because <laughs> I'm like this is so bad yeah. but what you don't realize if you've worked in this industry for a long time is that literally everything is bad at first or at least not as good as it could be and mm -hmm. it's like chiseling chiseling away mm. over time Oh, there's so much shame in the process of writing. I think because there's so much vulnerability in it. Zadie Smith talks about this and about um, the kind of like how publishing a book is, is feels hugely shameful and the shame around exposing yourself to be kind of obsessed with the same three ideas or to be perverse or selfish or and how kind of exposing it is to put something down and, and, and onto paper. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, I think the first 
The first draft is definitely going to be crap, as will the second and probably the third. And I think people don't realise that writing a book is actually writing seven, eight, nine, ten or more, you know, and you've just got to get something down first. So you you have a, a foundation to build off and something to work with and something to play around with. And I spend way more time editing than I do writing. And that's a huge part of, of it for me as well. So we all just have this expectation on ourselves to deliver something that's perfect right away. And it's just not how it works. And you just have to have faith and not shame yourself and try and push forward. And I think the other thing is to just know those people in your life who are safe keepers for your creativity that you can go to and say, oh, I'm I'm writing this screenplay or I've started writing this book and people that are going to be encouraging and offer you helpful, constructive critique and not make jokes or mm. put you down or, you know, that was important for me to really establish people in my life who where I could put my creativity and it would feel safe. That is such a good point because I think Julia Cameron calls it believing mirrors, doesn't she? She does. Yeah, she writes about it in the artist's yeah. way. Yes, because I think you're a believing mirror for a lot of people. Like, oh. a, lot, a lot of people come to you with a very vulnerable first inkling, like first yeah. seed, and you always make someone feel like it's possible. And I wonder if there are people on the planet who want things to be made. Yeah, It's almost like you're... Like this sort of fairy godmother who like wants, <laughs> you want things to live <laughs> yeah. and be made. And a lot of people very, very sadly want to squish things. Yeah. And that's, yeah, out of fear of someone maybe getting ahead and doing something or fulfilling themselves creatively in a way that they don't have the courage to do. It's a very courageous thing. I also just think it's an energy exchange, isn't it? Like conversations are, it's an energy exchange. That's how I feel when somebody brings an idea to me. It's about injecting energy and going back and being, ah, this bit's really interesting. What about da 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 da? And that's what creates the momentum and the positivity to go away and reshape and reform something. Terrifying as well. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I know, I feel like you're, you know, we're doing this pre-publication. So um, it's always kind of interesting that sort of few weeks before, it's like a big, it's a big time. Did Zadie Smith say that writing a book causes this feeling of shame or did she say publishing causes the shame or both? She said publishing. She said the when a book publishes, there's this kind of feeling of shame as a writer and kind of... Um, bad reviews, receiving bad reviews, you know, can feel shameful. Um, And she said the thing about, you know, someone obviously uh, as far down the line in her career as she is and as kind of prolific, um, writing many, many books and being exposed of having, being obsessed by the same three ideas. And I thought that's, that is so interesting um, and relatable in in a way. If you kind of think about, you know, thinking about writing another novel, I'm like, oh gosh, you know, you kind of really challenge yourself. This one has to be different and you have to step away from certain things that you've deconstructed in the first um so yeah, I think when she when she spoke about it um, on a, the Literary Friction podcast, I believe it was, it was more about the process of publication. Mm. I, th- I like the idea of being obsessed by the, the, the same three things because sometimes you it's not you don't mean to. That's the funny thing, isn't it? You'll mm. look back at your portfolio of work and realize only in hindsight, I think, that you keep re- not repeating yourself, but mm. sort of trying to crack the same nut. Yeah, I you know. 
my book is ultimately about the process of asphyxiating shame, um, the shame that women live with day to day, the shame that's so ubiquitous, we don't even see it anymore. And that's been a huge part of like what the authors I represent do and talk about, you know, most of the writers I represent are activists and, uh, you know, work within social justice and are kind of feminist um, amongst many other things. But it makes sense. I haven't gone away and written, you know, a kind of crime novel the body of the work is holistic in a way because it's your life's kind of work I suppose and what you're interested in and what you want to contribute to the world and what you want to try and shift or change or partake in and I truly believe it all has to come out it has if you've got something bubbling it's actually really unhealthy for it to stay in and I think it's Brené Brown that said unused creativity is not benign so like mm. if it's unused, it's not actually neutral in your body. It's like causing you stress if God. it's not out on the page. So it's like that's why creativity is prescribed sometimes by literally medical professionals. Because wow. it's like go and release whatever's bubbling inside you in some way. That's God. like even a poem that no one reads. Jeez, I mean, that makes that makes total sense. And that's the other thing. It hasn't got to be... I loved every single moment of writing What a Shame. Like it was fulfilling and enjoyable and really good for me to have an activity and a hobby in my life that was taking me inward and not you know being so social all the time and I would have still have had all those experiences even if it had not got published Mm -hmm. I still would have had that joy I still would have had that you know also even the challenge of it and the days where you call your best friend and go this is a pile of crap why have I been wasting the last kind of year of my weekends sat indoors writing this um you still get to have all that even if somebody doesn't see it and I think we just place too much you know creativity now to be valued has to manifest itself in something that is kind of widely or broadly uh, critically acclaimed and I think that's inherently wrong creativity should be celebrated as like a day-to-day um way of being and I think we could all benefit from being a little bit more playful definitely definitely and on the bad reviews thing I I find it very interesting that how over the years I've really been able to split out my personal shame or my personal emotions with like someone else's objective view that I'll never meet because I I really don't think it's healthy to attribute someone's critique of your work to like you as a person yeah it's like the book is separate to you yeah somebody could think you're but you know somebody could read my book and hate it but they could meet me down the pub and we could have a right old laugh exactly. <laughs> and that's I think that's important to remember and um hold on to but I don't I mean I, I Goodreads has been quite kind to me so far and my publishers do send through kind of uh reader reviews but I certainly wouldn't find myself on there uh taking a look it's just I don't I don't want, you know, it's not good. You're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And no, it's a strange thing to do that. And like you say, that's a really good way to do it. You get select things sent through to you. And yeah. then, um, and then it's, it's already been written anyway. So I'm like, what's the point in digging around? Yeah. Um, so just one lasting kind of message, I suppose, on, on this theme of shame, because mm. I've just felt, you know, you, people listening, please go and buy this novel. It's so brilliant. And it really made me look at my own shame what would you say to someone who's listening to this and and thinking that 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 shameful feeling of like trying something new or giving something a go or stepping outside the box feels overwhelming what would like the first step be do you think 
I think shame is insidious and it kind of it thrives in the dark and I think bringing something out into the light is where shame burns away and you just have to go slowly you don't you know you don't have to create a body of work overnight and tell every single person that you know you can just do something for and with yourself and that's perfectly um of value that's completely a value um to you <laughs> and um you do have to be brave you do have to be brave in in overcoming that shame and that's the point really is that if you are entrusting it to the right people in your life then it will be nurtured and it will be encouraged and it will be respected and that shame will melt away and i think that's one of the most relieving <laughs> like i can't even put words to that feeling it's just relief and acceptance and not just of other people but self acceptance mm. just got to be a little bit brave yes yes just like matilda is in the book just like matilda is in the book yeah and it's hard and it's a process don't ask too much of yourself in one go yeah start slow definitely there's a great untangling I think that's happening with productivity culture as well at the moment just like it feels really not it feels quite wrong now to like be really preaching productivity yeah. I just don't think it's helping anymore to marry that up with any sense of worth because we're just not machinery. We're, we're just living, breathing people. No, and I don't think you should battle with yourself to sit and do something because you feel you should be being productive or you should be producing something. I don't think it's possible to be birthing and producing creative projects all the time. I think there's moments in your life, as you were saying earlier, where ideas come to you and you've got to jump on them and run with them. Um, so... I think that pressure is unnecessary. I my advice would just be follow your bliss and follow your joy and do and that might just be sitting down with some watercolors and doing some a painting of a Sunday afternoon or it might be signing up to a um co you know stand up comedy course. Just follow what makes you feel excited and uh, and that's that's all you can do. Really, that's all you can make that's all you can make space for totally oh well thank you so much for sharing that i loved it we went on a sort of guided tour of the topic of shame but through the novel and through <laughs> you and through everything you've done and, and everything that you've learned over the last few years as well especially so congratulations on what a shame thank you so much this podcast will be out either a few days before it's published or it will be published now today so go and get your copy go and support an amazing debut author and um Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for coming on.